This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Greetings and welcome to a conversation with the Stewart Collection, Mary Beebe, the director, and Terry Allen. And my name is Matthew Gregoire, and I'll endeavor to moderate or ask questions uh, in a conversation as we go forward. Since the 1960s, Terry has worked as a visual and performing artist. He's known to music aficionados as a composer and exceptional musician, and has worked with the likes of Jimmy Dale Gilmore, Dave Alvin, Joe Ely, David Byrne, and many others. He's known in the art world for the diversity of his work encompassing storytelling, installation, painting, sculpture, and of course, performance. He's a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Towns Van Zandt Songwriting Award, He's inducted into the Buddy Holly Walk of Fame and received many other awards and recognitions. And we have also Mary Beebe, the one and only director of the Stewart Collection since 1981. Welcome to the two of you. Thanks. Thank Mary. you. So uh, first question to both of you, I guess, but starting with Mary, uh, how did you first become aware of Terry's work and how did the two of you meet? I met up with Terry at the bar in Ketchum at Sun Valley, Idaho, where I was doing a site visit for the National Endowment for the Arts. And Terry was, I think you were making a print or something. Yeah, I was working in the print shop, yeah. Drink and we laughed and we, um, uh, I decided we had to have him come to the Portland Center for Visual Arts. So he did in 76 maybe? Anyway, we have been good pals ever since, uh, through thick and thin, <laughs> right, Terry? And uh, I've loved his music from the get-go. He has performed at uh, the, the Stewart Collection as part of this opening and as a part of the 20th anniversary in 2001. We had the whole band, the, Panhandle Mystery Band, and it was heaven. <laughs> so, Terry, what was your experience of meeting Mary, and what did you do at the Portland Center for the Visual Arts? I didn't know you'd ever been there in the 1970s. I had a, sh a, a small show of drawings, I think, from uh, the Juarez series of drawings, and I played... Uh, and the the thing I remember about playing is that they they had a beautiful white Steinway piano that was in there, and um, it had, the night before Mickey Gilly had done a concert and played on that same piano. That's really all I remember about it, other than r walking around and eating fish. <laughs> <laughs> And so, Mary, then you came down to San Diego in the very early 80s, and Terry was on your mind, I assume, from the very beginning, and maybe you can talk about the advisory committee and how he came to be asked to come out uh, to do a proposal, to develop a proposal. Well, our advisory committee at the Stewart Collection uh, hadn't, didn't know Terry that well, and... Uh, they were surprised at the idea of talking trees. They were kind of delighted. And um, so we said about... Well, I, I think first uh, he didn't know what he wanted to do. 
So it was the idea of just inviting him at first, because I wanted to also read some uh, part of a letter that he wrote to you about. Yeah, Mary yeah. initially contacted me and asked me to uh, if I would be interested in, in coming to the campus and walking around and maybe doing a piece, because I think you had two or three other pieces uh, and it was kind of j just getting going, I, I think, at that time. And uh, I was reluctant to come down. The only reason I went down is because I liked Mary so much. And I, and I went down. But I had a real aversion to public art. Uh, the yeah, let me read this uh, little excerpt from the letter you wrote her. I, it sounds like you'd been struggling with coming up with an idea. And you wrote her and said, the problem is, which I told you before, I never much cared for outdoor sculpture. If you can understand it, that's one of the main reasons the project is so interesting to me. About the only things outside I like are the Buddy Holly statue in Lubbock, the little bronze kid life-size on the sidewalk eating a hamburger in front of McDonald's in Kansas City, <laughs> the Eiffel Tower, the Lincoln Monument, the memory of my 1953 green Chevrolet half sunk in Buffalo Lake in Lubbock, the Great Plains Life Building in Lubbock, stuff like that. Maybe you could just talk about what you liked about all those things and also what you disliked about public sculpture. Yeah, I think, I mean, I was, I think I was speaking from just, you know, a, a, a massive uh, body of ignorance at the time that I was, you know, uh, when I said that, but but I really, at the time, my idea of outdoor sculpture was kind of plop art. Uh, these big corporations and places that uh, commissioned things and dropped them in front of their, their big buildings to show how rich they were or how cultured they were. And I, I always thought that was, uh, I wasn't interested in that. And when, when I went to to visit the Sturt collection, it was a totally different deal because it was, the campus was full of trees. Uh, there were, uh, it, was, it was just kind of a whole other idea of a site. And then talking to Mary about it, it was about engaging in, 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 in a world and making a world. And that made me very interested in it, even though I still didn't know really what, what I wanted to do. And I, I, I guess I made three or four trips over quite a few times uh, and, <clears throat> and did a, a number of sketches and ideas, just kind of half-assed ideas. But I, I remember I, I was getting ready to go to Thailand to do the music for a, a film called Amerasia, the German film. And uh, uh, Mary wrote me this kind of frantic note saying, We've got to have an idea. We've got to have something now. And uh, I, I had been thinking about the trees, and I just said, well, I'll just put a speaker in one of these trees and, and uh, cover it with sheet lead because I'd been getting interested. I'd been very interested in working with lead, and, uh, uh, and that'll, that'll, that's what I'm going to propose. And so I sent this drawing to Mary, and... Uh, that was really my proposal drawing. I sent several other ideas that I, that I had too. Then it then it became real. When I got back from Thailand, we started talking. I came back down, and and then we really started talking about uh, what 
you know, just all of the ramifications of what this kind of a piece would be. And, and uh, I got interested in the idea of inviting people, uh, musicians that I knew, writers that I knew, to uh, uh, maybe make a song or make a poem or make something for the tree and something that people, you know, they would like people to hear coming out of a, out of a tree. And, and it, it, it kind of evolved that way. And then, you, Matthew, you and I uh, uh, had a lot of discussions just about just the nuts and bolts of, of, of putting lead on a tree, a eucalyptus tree. To, uh, do, do you cut one down? I, do, I didn't really want to cut one down. Uh, and it turned out I, that, that the university was cutting a bunch down, I guess, to build a building. And so I selected, uh, by that time, I wanted to do two, two trees, uh, one with music and then one with, like, poetry uh, or writing. And then we decided, well, let's do a third tree that's like a, a, a silent tree. Then we came against the world, the, the vast world of codes, you know, of, of what we could do and couldn't do. And uh, because eucalyptus has very shallow roots, covering it with, you know, a thousand tons of sheet lead, uh, you couldn't just go out and nail it to a tree uh, because it would fall over and kill somebody probably. So we, we got into the, plus it had to be earthquake proofed. Um, and uh, so we had to deal with the whole idea of footings and, uh, and that all that all became Matthew's domain. Uh, how how we were going to cover these uh, trees, what kind of lead we were going to use, uh, um, and then the tree itself had to be preserved. So I think it was six months or something that it was in uh, copper sulfate. Uh, these vats that had to set like a, a telephone pole and creosote, kind of to to to. Uh, strengthen these these eucalyptus trees. And then I remember the day you and I and, and uh, Robin Brailsford, I think, uh, the three of us started hammering uh, lead, cutting cutting little, uh, like, uh, scales of, of squares of lead and, and hammering them on. Yeah, when I think about codes and when I think about the way things work today uh, in the world and at the university... Things were so much simpler back then, actually. Um, yeah, and it was, seemed uh, so complex, you know, at the time. To, yeah. You know? But it's like the thing that was really interesting is that everything was something that you didn't know. Every, everything, you were learning something that you didn't know, and including like the, the what kind of uh, speakers were we going to use, you know, outdoor, uh, what kind of a sound system, and... State of the art was there wasn't state of the art. <laughs> you know? Yes, you know? right. <laughs> we developed that speakers actually. and tape recorders instead, and uh, so and that was a whole other thing from you know from my end of like starting to invite people to send in cassette tapes because that's that's what we were used, dealing with. That's really all we had to deal with, and. Uh, so I got tapes, everything from a, uh, you know, done in somebody singing in a shower and to a studio quality recording. And uh, 
so you encountered the idea of mixing it. How do you, you know? How can you? We have to have a, somehow a distribution of all of these things that are going on in the, in the trees. And then how close? Where did the trees go? How far apart are they? Uh, you know what? What? What are they going to do in in visually in 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 these groves of trees? So. There are a lot of, uh, you know, really uh, interesting mysteries that we were constantly counter- encountering, I thought. And, uh, so this was really your first public work, wasn't it? Yeah, it was before I'd done bronze or anything. I think the next piece I did was Corporate Head, the one that, that's in L.A. The, when you talked about that shivy. I actually made that shivy and just just did a piece called Road Angel where I cast the 1953 shivy and uh, it has a sound system with with music playing and it's in at Laguna Gloria in Austin. So that's it's interesting that I put that in that letter at that time, you know. So that's that 1953 green Chevrolet half sunk in Buffalo Lake in Lubbock, huh? Yeah. It's a it's a remake of that. And then it has sound, and it's a beautiful permanent piece that you have there. Yeah, it has. It's uh, it's it's. Well, there's some some there's poetry and songs, you know, which are the same thing, as far as I'm concerned. You know. I just wanted to say, and then I'll ask Mary a question. But when you're talking about how we went about doing this, it was. Uh, to think back on it, it's so very different than the way things are now at the university where everything has to be uh, vetted and uh, made through a whole complicated process that they call procurement. Uh, and uh, and uh, we instead just went down. I mean, we just realized at the last minute there are trees being cut down and we grabbed, you know, hired a crane and grabbed uh, three trees and got the crane company to come and cut them apart in the right place. And it just happened sort of instantaneously and then the actual making of the trees involved the community in a quite a wonderful way most of the grad students who were there at the time got you know jobs nailing uh nailing shingles to the trees and uh, sherman george was the head of the uh, communications uh, area and uh, he was totally involved and in love with the whole idea and instrumental in uh, the whole technical uh, process of setting it up aaron from CBS came and did a uh, segment for On the Road with Charles Corralt, it was. And um, it was quite fun. The Chancellor loved it. You know, anyway, it has become a kind of very special place in the hearts of students. And I think faculty and everyone on campus, uh, just right there in front of the library. Yeah, it's, it's a place where people go and everybody knows what they're talking about when they say the silent tree. And uh, it's a natural gathering place for, for protests uh, as well as memorials. And it's been a very moving experience to be at, uh, at some of those. I was there for the, uh, when those uh, murders happened in Sri Lanka and the whole Sri Lankan community gathered there and Elizabeth Simmons uh, was there. And it was, uh, it just sort of escapes your hand in a way, a piece like this, Terry. You, it seems like you set it up First of all, the whole soundtrack of it, which is now many hours, especially with the silences in between, I think we've got 
you know, 12 hours worth of, uh, of sound in both the poetry and the music tree. It's all by others and it has been curated and, and sort of expanded uh, over the years. You came back and you and Jane and Mary and others uh, sat down, Charles Curtis, and acted as a kind of jury for the submissions for new works. And, and I find when I cross the campus, sometimes at night or something, going to and from a class, I'm suddenly surprised by this. It's uh, it's just kind of wonderful the way it's uh, the way it's uh, completely embedded in itself in the fabric of the campus. And the and the kids in the nearby daycare center, which I think has moved, but they call it the Enchanted Forest, and little kids come and like to dance around the the trees. Um, we should say that we had did have. Obama's first inaugural speech on the poems and stories tree. Of course, it was very long, and we decided to switch that out for him singing Amazing Grace at the church in Alabama or Georgia or wherever it was, which is incredibly moving. So uh, there's all kinds of variety, and we change it around. Every once in a while, a faculty member will ask me um, if they can if students can make things for the trees and we say sure for a week or so for some cause or another. Yeah. yeah. One thing about the silent tree, when we initially placed it, it was, it, it never set right to, to me as, as the other two, the other two seemed to fall right in place in the, but the silent tree was, and we called it the silent tree because it was in front of the library. Uh, and you know, at one point I said, "Well, we, maybe we should just have a tape uh, that plays that just goes shh, shh periodically." And then uh, when it got moved, is when it, it I think it became really something else. It be, you know it became uh, a table of contents for one one thing, uh, which um, included all of the names of all of the people that were involved in any aspect of making the tree, of being on the other other trees. And uh, uh, so it was added to including Obama, you know, with that, that speech. Because I, I remember, the I, I can't remember how long, several years ago, that I went with um, more sheet lead and, and nailed some more names onto it of these students that, that uh, we selected to have pieces on there, plus... Uh, uh, the other people that I had brought that had done pieces for it, so it's it's the, I like that aspect of it being a living kind of thing, and then the idea of it becoming a, a gathering place, uh, uh, it kind of knocks me out because that that wasn't really what we were thinking about that it was going to be or whatever. But uh, uh, I think that's what happens with work that uh, it kind of it becomes its own living thing and, 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 and starts doing what it does, whether it has to do with the, the intention initially or, or whatever. And uh, uh, I, you know, I always just like the idea of, of thinking about somebody walking through those groves and suddenly hearing a poem out of the sky, you know, or a song. And not really knowing because visually they fit, they fall right into the the natural uh, covering of the, the eucalyptus trees, the bark. So, 
so you can't immediately see it or find them, you know. Yeah, the and, students have st- tales of bringing friends, visiting friends in the night or <laughs> scaring them or whatever. <laughs> discovering the trees, singing away in the middle of the night because they're on 24-7. Yeah. I know at one time, I, you know, because one of the wor- the words that kept popping up when we were uh, putting it in was the master plan. And the master plan was like these minefields that were all over the university that we had to avoid. At one point, I thought that, you know, probably the only two trees that are going to be left in this place are those two, those three trees that we made. You know? Well, actually, the master plan is pretty serious about keeping those groves the way they are. Actually, we went through a process that wasn't altogether pleasant and uh, and didn't altogether contribute, but there were pathway, a whole network of pathways that went through there pretty recently, just a few years ago, and, and we struggled to make sure that they didn't... Uh, you go too close to one of the trees and uh, that everything was uh, so that was, you know, designed in a way that would uh, work for both intentions of making pathways and bicycle paths and so on. Uh, yeah, I did, I, you know, well, you know, you knew my feelings about that. And, and yeah, well, it was all of our feelings, but you know, there is a, there is a sense of, respect and that they have to do things everything has to be planned there's 50,000 students there now and uh, and there is a sense of uh, uh, you know of trying to involve everybody uh, even though everybody may not always be uh, happy uh, with with the result um, Terry this is a big uh, change but I guess I, I really wanted to ask you about about Lubbock about growing up there um, and I know that everything you wanted to do when you were 17 was get out of there. And yet your work has circled around to Lubbock. Your archives are there now. And it's been a part of your work and your life ever since. And, and your your family and your childhood and your parents and everything was so interesting. And I just kind of wanted to throw that out and uh, see if you had any thoughts to share about that. Where you're raised... It's especially in, in if it's a very stark environment, a very kind of religious, hard shell, flat land, uh, flat culture. Like most kids, you know, in, in the 50s, like when rock and roll hit, it was like it opened this huge door to the world that there was something to do besides go to church, go to school, and uh, what your parents told you, you know. It opened up... uh, all of these possibilities, and I kind of scapegoated the town and, and growing up there, uh, really to get get out of there, to to force myself into the world, and and went to California, and uh, but Joe Harvey's folks were there, uh, still had f- uh, some friends there, but we constantly went back over periods of time, and and. Uh, uh, Oh, you know, when I 
when I recorded Lubbock on everything, it was the first time I really realized that rather than despising this place, which I verbally kind of told everybody and said that I did, it was the first time I realized when I listened to my my own music for the first time about you know that I was putting on this record called Lubbock on Everything. It was a, the first time I really realized I loved this place and that it was indelibly marked inside of me and. It, it kind of turned everything around as far as thinking that you, you know, you you can use wherever you're from, where, where whatever uh, uh, history you have is 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 something that's 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 an important part of you and an important well that you can draw upon, and uh, uh, and I I think I would feel that way if I wherever I, I was. But, you know, had been raised, but maybe more so in a rural, uh, isolated kind of area. It became more intense than if I'd been raised in a city or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, another planet of your uh, emotions and your, your, you know, the things that you think about and the things that you feel. Uh, there's always a, a connection there, I think. It's like writing songs, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> which is a little simplistic, but uh, when you're from that part of the country, the, the, the space, which is so flat and endless, that space is also happens in the music that comes from there. It's that, that same kind of space in the songs that's in the geography. And you hear the, the people... Uh, who write songs in East Texas, say, or people that are from mountains, they write, you know, there's spaces that, that are blocked and, and trees in front of them are, are mount. And the language that they use and the words that they use uh, are the same way. You know, they, they kind of, they're, they're, there's, a, there's a, a, a barricade you know, of trees or uh, something to get across or whatever. Whereas, you know, flatland, it's it's all about getting to some edge and that edge going around that edge but are going over that edge, you know. And I think it has, it, it certainly affects your the way you think visually as well. Uh, because I didn't grow up around looking at any art, you know. There was, there was a ship. A framed etching of a ship was the only uh, drawing or painting or anything in our house. My mother had bird plates, uh, these porcelain plates that she collected that had paintings of birds on them. And uh, uh, I've I've always used birds as images in my work, and uh, that's the only thing I can equate with it. The only connection I can make is that... uh, that those bird plates I grew around seeing these images, you know. And the ship, uh, I still have on my uh, studio wall in here. I don't know uh, how that happens as much as I know that it's just a, a, always a part of you, that, that land that you come from and that space that you come from. And trees have always interested me. <laughs> Because there were none. Because I never saw any. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just think of the 
you know, the, the titles of your recent albums and they all talk about sort of vast spaces. You've got Bottom of the World and your recent album, Just Like Moby Dick. And uh, all of that seems to speak to these endless and vast spaces that are uninterrupted. You know, it's, it's, it's a, a different way of looking at something because rather than looking at what's right in front of you, you look past it, you know. You look, you look to some edge or horizon or something behind it. And it, 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 it's, a, it's, it's a, just a different way of, of looking, I think. And, and you find that fairly prevalent with, among people that come from that part of the country. I know most of the, my mother's side of the family were all tattooed, very heavily tattooed. They were all Navy and Merchant Marine people. Uh, and sailors and and uh, every one of them, when when there was, there was when they enlisted or, or whatever, they never thought about joining the army or the Marines or anything. They they joined the Navy, uh, and I that was very common in that part of the country during World War Two One and World War Two. Uh, the bulk of people that enlisted enlisted in the Navy, and I always thought it was just because of that. That horizon was that there was something comfortable about the ocean and that ocean of dirt that you grew up on, you know. So, uh, so there's always been a, a kind of a, you know, a, an aquatic edge to to that flatness, <laughs> you know, that. Uh, that I've always been interested in, you know. And I've never been, I've never had any desire to be a sailor or get on a sailboat or do any of that. It's just the idea of it, the, the you know, the, the, the sense of it that I think is so uh, completely mysterious, you know. And your mom played the piano, she was the first woman expelled from SMU, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, uh, in the 20s. And she was expelled for playing in Deep Ellum, uh, playing jazz. Uh, but worse, even worse than playing the devil's music, she was playing it with, with uh, a black band. And uh, uh, she was like 19 years old playing with, you know, had a regular gig that she was trying to keep quiet, but they found out that she, I remember her telling me, you know, when they called her in front of the, or she went before the dean to be expelled, you know, and told that, you know, it was unspeakable what she was doing. Uh, she, and she said, well, you know, how, how, how did you find me? How did you know I was doing it, you know? And uh, because obviously they'd they'd been going to those clubs and things too, you know. But <laughs> but, but she, uh, when she got thrown out, she went to Fort Worth and she in, uh, enrolled in beauty school, and uh, so she could have a day job. And then had a band uh, that she worked at night. And when she got the band and got her little diploma from beauty school, when she got the band together moved to California and uh, played, you know, little combos all up and down uh, California, all kind of before uh, uh, World War II. And your dad? He was a professional baseball player. 
He was like 60 when I was born. So he was, he, 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 he played baseball uh, in the majors in 1910, you know. He was born in 1886 and ran away from home because uh, he didn't want to be a farmer, which my grandfather, I, I, he grew up on a farm and, uh, and ran off to play ball. They were trains that my mother, you know, played all all over music-wise. My dad played ball all over. And uh, they met in Amarillo in uh, 1941. And and, uh, she was 20 years younger than him. And I was born in 43, you know. So... Mary, we're... Right now, in a time when everything's been quarantined and the UCSD campus is completely empty or has been for a few months, and uh, maybe you could just talk about the presence of the trees over the years and what it's like now and uh, how it has sort of changed over the years and how people discover them. Well, I love the way people discover them. You, you have to sort of find them or hear that you probably hear them first. The color of the lead is that gray, which is also the color of the eucalyptus. And so the discovery process is really part of it and and a lot of fun. And then the Poems of Stories tree is a little further off the beaten trail. It's harder to find unless you hear it first. This is how the duck caller sounds when you just blow through it. This is how the caller sounds when the air is delivered through the caller by control pressure from your stomach muscles as demonstrated by the basic call of the hen mallard. And then, of course, the silent tree is there, but um, right in front of the library. But I was there at one point and doing something, telling people about the tree. And some kids went by and said, is this new? This tree new? I said, no, it's been. I said, how long have you been students? I don't know, a couple of years. And I said, you, wait, you've never noticed this tree? It was kind of amazing. Anyway, so it's there. But obviously students coming and going don't always, always see it, um, which I think is great. But the other thing is now, you know, with the campus virtually empty, it's the trees are carrying on. There are their voices coming out at you as you wander around. So it's art is alive on campus. And that feels so great. I mean, it really does to have it be a grim time and um but poems and stories and music are are singing out at you and uh coming at you strong and uh forever so um i i think i get quite emotional about that i think it's really really wonderful part of the Stewart collection it adds a whole nother feeling i think to the campus that it's kind of remarkable, especially in these times. Yeah, I think just the the surprise factor of walking through that that collection, you know, you just constantly coming upon something that's so either strange or beautiful or both or what what you know, and what a gift that is, you know, to for people um, that are not expecting it, you know. 
And I think even people that know about the collection or whatever and go there to see, I know the last time I think I was there was when uh, uh, Mickey and Jeannie Klein were there and some other people from Santa Fe, and we were walking around. And they were just they were totally enchanted by the the whole idea of of kind of stumbling upon something that you weren't expecting, you know, in a, in a university setting. So it's very unique in that that sense, I think, you know. Yeah, and the idea that something doesn't necessarily need to be explained, you know, something can remain mysterious, and in a lot of ways, that's where the art is that the students I are always wanting things to be explained and, and universities are inevitably places where things are just relentlessly rational and it seems like the Stewart collection brings in this kind of inexplicable thing that is very important to include. Yeah, and I think your percep your perceptions, you're bound to carry that with you, some of these students when you know, and just when they're out walking around in the world, seeing seeing the world a little bit differently, the things that surprise you and, and you know, uh, uh, I think that's the great educational benefit. We have students that come back and say, I went to Europe and I went to, in Paris and I saw the fountain and I knew who did it. And that's yeah. Nikki's Stravinsky fountain, which she did with Tingley in front of the yeah. Beaubourg in Paris. And so that's always um, wonderful to me. Even if they don't haven't thought that much about them, they have these images in their head that will uh, that they carry with them, like the bear. People didn't expect it. Why? Why a bear? What's going on? A bear out of rocks, solid granite. Um, just another surprise. How did it get here? What's going on? Some of those songs that are playing and how old they are now, you know, and, and uh, uh, but how odd a lot of them were then, and the, the, the you know the oddness and the uniqueness hasn't changed at all, you know. If if anything, they're becoming more so, you know. I think over time, and uh, um, so that's kind of a, a bonus, I think, you know. Somebody had uh, jet planes, uh, military planes roaring overhead and coming out of the trees, I think. Who was that? Chip Lord. Chip Lord. Chip Lord did that, yeah. Yeah. Just all kinds of... Uh, Zuzu and the Robot Slave Boys. doing. Yeah. I can't remember what that song was. but Oh, it was a master plan. That was the name oh. of their song. The recent album... Just like Moby Dick, which we just saw performed in Los Angeles uh, and sailing on through. I'd love to hear about that. It's a kind of clutch of songs I've been working on the last uh, couple of years. and uh, But also uh, some of them are co-written. Uh, we, we had that, this great opportunity to go to Marfa, Texas. And uh, uh, Tim Crowley, who owns a hotel there and has a theater there, uh, asked to come and, and do he he you know we had a big an anniversary celebration there and uh, uh, Tim wanted us to do it every year because you know and we said no way we're gonna do it you know you know we're never gonna do it again <laughs> you know and he said well come back and do something and so um, 
uh, we said, well, why, why don't we do just invite a bunch of songwriters and come because I haven't really ever done that before. Just just a bunch of uh, musicians and, and songwriters and work for a week and see what happens. And uh, it was just one of those very fertile uh, thing, you know, that you can't you can't can't plan. We wrote, did the songwriting thing in in July, and went back the following December, and uh, I, I brought uh, all of my new songs, and we just tried to work up the songs, uh, my songs plus the, the songs that, that I'd kind of co-written with everybody uh, before. And then uh, my record company was very excited about it. And so it was just released last, uh, I guess, January, uh, end of January. The record can, is, is pretty cold-blooded as far as a lot of the images and a lot of the circumstances and a lot of the dying and, and, and war and, you know, uh, angst, whatever. But I think sailing on through kind of is kind of sums it up, and uh, it seems to be a good song too for kind of right now uh, with all of the stuff that's going on with the virus, but also the protesting and whatever. Uh, but it's it's really about getting through it, and uh, I kind of think the whole album's really about just getting through it, whatever the whatever obstacles you kind of crash into along the way and knock you down or whatever. Maybe life's just a cliff You gotta climb Go hang by the skin of your teeth You can fall any time So better break out the bottle I'll bring on the glass I'll Fill it up with the good stuff Nothing's gonna last Just go sailing on through Sailing on through Sailing on through I'll just start it off with a question for Terry. Um, this This was the first public project you did, as as you said in, in the video. And uh, what have you kind of learned since then with the many that you have done, and especially the ones in San Diego, because there are a couple of others, and love to hear about that, uh, and just in general, what it's like working uh, in the public and how it's different from uh, everywhere else that you have worked. All your work you want people to see, so in a sense, all of it's public art. There's three pieces that I've done that that I really like what happened with them because they provided platforms for other people to uh, to present what they do. And uh, the tree piece at at Stewart Collection also did a piece uh, called uh, Cross the Razor in uh, 1994, a show that was put together of... 50, I think, Mexican artists and 50 U.S. artists and uh, took place on the border uh, right by San Diego and, and Tijuana. And I did a piece with two vans, one on each side of the border uh, it, it, in Playas, which is uh, right down near the ocean. I was uh, went with Mary uh, to 
lunch down in uh, down around Rosarito Beach, I think. And uh, it was the first time I'd seen the wall that they were building coming up out of the ocean. They were taking these big metal slabs that were tarmac uh, from the uh, leftovers from the Iraq war that they were using to build a wall. And the wall went, ran right up to a, a pylon that had a kind of a circular concrete slab around it. And then the wall ended at one side of the slab then started at the other. And there was a chain link fence connecting with this pylon in the middle. And the pylons uh, was uh, dedicated to the friendship between the United States and Mexico. But anyway, it was the only area also you could look through the, and see the other side. So I've uh, stationed a van uh, with, on each side with a platform on the top of each van and a, um, a little ladder that you could get up there, put a translator, a sound system, uh, and invited people on each side of the border to get up and say anything, do anything they wish to the other side. And uh, it was up for about six weeks, uh, <clears throat> and... Bands got up there and played. People read poetry. Uh, people had intense kind of discussions. And it was all very responsible, which it seemed like when people kind of got above that eye level of the wall and looked each other in the eye, they, they became more respectful of one another. And the conversations were, were uh, very, very intense, and, and, uh, uh, but at the same time considerate. I also did a piece up in uh, uh, Northern California at Oliver Ranch called Human Nature of, of a, a guy with his head stuck in a tree and his pants falling down and a woman bent over with her head in a rock. And they're about 100 yards apart, or initially were. And then there was a series of speakers through, uh, that went through the trees above them uh, that had just gibberish kind of talk, like... And they had a conversation between this man and woman. Then I, Richard Bowden, who plays fiddle uh, in the in the band, an old friend has played with about everything we've ever done theater-wise, came in here and walked in circles playing Moon River. And that we taped that and put that's kind of the, the background sound of, of the piece. So... Uh, Anyway, I've always tempted to use sound uh, and and uh, have that urge, uh, even though I've, a lot of pieces don't have that, other than the natural sound that's going on in the world that the piece is in. I like people that engage a, a, a sculpture and they'll, you know, they rub it and they touch it and they crawl on it and whatever, I, because it's right out in the world with them. It's not on a pedestal or whatever. And the same with the deer, the three deer in Columbus uh, on the Sauro River. There's uh, three kind of humanized deer that are just looking at the river, pondering it. And Sauro, it's called the Sauro Lounge. And uh, Sauro is the name of the river, which means hair of the deer. And uh, so I started working with this idea of, of these deer just kind of contemplating the river on the around the edge of it and again people you know engage them they sit with them they get photo their photo ops and whatever but i think each one of them kind of you know initial you might get a, a laugh or a hit on it that way but then 
then I think there's something else that happens with a lot of these pieces, that there's a kind of an afterflow of, of what you think about them and what those pieces are actually doing. Here's a question about a sort of recent controversy. It's not a recent controversy at all, actually, but related to bronzes. Uh, and I uh, wondered if you had, I mean, the questioner wondered if you had any thoughts on all these statues uh, that have been taken down uh, because they're uh, uh, Confederate-related and uh, because they're uh, uh, related to ideas that have become hurt, so hurtful. And uh, and uh, do you want to talk about that at all? I don't have any, any problem with them being taken down. I do have uh, reservations about them being destroyed. I think it would be a, a much better uh, idea to put them in some kind of a museum or some kind of special place where people could come and look at them and they could have an explanation of where these things came from, the time that they were happening and what was going on, uh, rather than just writing it off because of the fury of the moment, you know. Um, and uh, because we are, you know, we are our history. And uh, so I think you have to look at that stuff square in the face. Mary, do you have any thoughts about that? Having dealt with public art all your life? <laughs> no, not all my life, Matthew. But yeah, I, I I agree with Terry. I think they should come down at, uh, as they are now displayed, but they should be saved, as Terry says. We it's our history, and we should we need to face up to it, and and remember it. And so, uh, just destroying them and throwing them away, I I completely agree with Terry. There's a place, and it makes me think of this uh, place, uh, Memento Park in uh, Budapest. In Budapest, they've taken down all the statues from the socialist era, um, and they, they just did them all. They just took them all away, and they've put them all in this park, and you can go there and visit. And there's something artificial about it. There's something that sort of feels wrong about it, um, uh, because they were just completely uprooted, and, and it is a huge part of the history, but... Um, uh, but yeah, it's basically what you're both talking about. Yeah, you know, it's like some of the murals in Mexico. That I know they used to, uh, uh, depending on what party or what president was elected at the particular time and what the artist's political ideas were, painted these murals. And then, then uh, uh, the one guy would get thrown out of the office, another would come in, another artist would come but they didn't destroy the mural. They usually just covered it. And then they would do, an, do another mural somewhere else on another building. But there was always just that respect for the, the idea of a time and a place. And uh, then another party would come back in and they would put, pull a thing down and put another one up, you know. But I think it, it needs to be saved. Uh, we need to, to save those things that we are. Yeah, those, I mean, those Confederate statues were put up for a purpose, a very clear purpose, and it was quite a while after the Civil War, and it was, uh, you know, it was Jim Crow. I mean, it was about subjugation. That was the reason those things got put up. It wasn't just uh, history. Here's one uh, that talks about uh, Mexico. It says, uh, you spoke about the impact of Lubbock and, the West, and West Texas on your work and music. And just who, and just on it, who you are, what draws you to involve Mexico extensively in your work? 
I, I remember when uh, I was talking to my friend Joe Ely about this, growing up in Lubbock, and, and uh, when the migrants would come in, the migrant workers would come in uh, to work to pull the cotton fields. And uh, I can remember they had big camps out at the fairground. Uh, it was like a big gypsy camp. They had trailers and trucks and tents and whatever, and all these people would come in. Thousands of people would come in and make a community there. It was the first time I ever experienced people sitting on the steps, playing music, singing songs, people cooking, picking, uh, just the, the whole thing of, of life that was going on there. And as a child, kind of wandering through there, holding my dad's hand, it had a huge impact on me. And I, I, I just always remembered that. Then growing up in the 50s where... Mexico was always the romantic uh, hideout, you know. That like if you, you know, if you robbed a bank, you went to Mexico. Whatever, you know, whatever you wanted that that you couldn't get over here, you could always get over there. That that kind of uh, idea, which uh, you know was was absurdist, obviously. So about the present time and the future, uh, the question is, uh, uh, what are you working on now? Uh, and I mean, that's folded into that, I, I think, is probably the current crisis and the virus and how's it affected the way you work and and the way your your fellow visual artists and musicians work. And uh, and and also, what's Joe Harvey working on or what are you working on together? All venues have come to a screeching halt as far as clubs or places to play, theaters, uh, galleries. Um, so uh, this this kind of. Uh, communication is uh, I've done a lot of uh, several Zoom benefits and things like that but uh, I think everybody's trying to get their feet like as far as you know what the possibilities are of, as far as how you present your work and what you can do and I have I, you know I have no doubts I mean one thing I know about artists they always figure out some way to do it you know they figure out some way to show their work or people to hear their work or perform their work I'm lucky. I'm very lucky because, you know, we we did another trip to Marfa last uh, December and wrote a bunch of new songs. And so we've been, ta I've been talking about how maybe we could record those like, like this in, in different studios in different parts of the country where people are shut in. Uh, and uh, also uh, uh, I've got a, a, a big... Uh, a commission that I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to talk to or talk about because I'm, I don't have a contract with it yet, but it's kind of on the edge of something. It's something I'm very excited about doing. It has to do with kind of projecting the idea of of uh, uh, what uh, religion, what the nature of religion, especially Christianity, will be 2,000 years from now. So that's opened up a lot of ways to, to think about a, a lot of different things that have to do with, with uh, uh, r religious iconography and whatever. Joe Harvey's been working on a book uh, 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 called Neighbors and Old Men, where she's writing, uh, she's been thinking about all the neighbors we've had from, or she's had from the time she was a little girl, and then these kind of inserts of stories of these old men she's crossed tracks with, besides me. Uh, these old men that she's met in different parts of the world and, and different places. And, uh, and 
so she's excited about working on that. I, th I think all of us are, you know, buck and bale are very productive. Everybody's uh, uh, just trying to take take it, uh, you know, take it to a point you can figure out what's going on and then do something with it, you know. One of the fun things about the Stewart Collection is that each project has completely different demands and requirements and stuff. So it's always a new adventure. Yeah. Like you were you were talking about figuring out how to deal with footings and, and everything else. Well, you know, we do that too with each new project. And that's a lot of the fun is the discovery process. And thank the Lord Matthew is so good at that. <laughs> Mary, you want to just in about a half a minute talk about any upcoming things like Terry was talking about in his work or you want to talk about upcoming uh, projects for the Stewart Collection? Well, we're actively working on two new projects. Um, one is in the process of, of developing a proposal. The other one is Anne Hamilton, who has submitted a proposal and it's been approved and it's going to, it has to do with a, a very large pathway 26 feet wide that comes from the new trolley uh, system that's going to come through the campus and it comes from that station into the interior of the campus and we're very excited about that. We have a, a new book that's just out. It covers all of the Stewart collection works. I think it's a real learning tool as well as for, for me a great pleasure. Thank you both uh, for uh, being here and all right. Okay. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.